happening before the physical actions take place. It is with this thought of mine I take you to the spiritual armor as we've looked at this throughout uh, the last two to three weeks and seeing that this armor is a metaphor of applying Jesus Christ and his gospel to our life. As the book of Ephesians has, especially in the first three chapters, explained to us the Word of God, how it forms us as a body, as a community, together. And then in chapters 4 through 6, what does that mean for us? And the last exhortation you see in chapter 6, verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. What does that look like? And so he gives us this metaphor of armor to show us the elements of applying Christ to our heart and to our life. And so in each one of these, I share a little bit different nuance of what that means as we look at uh, the breastplate of righteousness, we look at uh, the, uh, the belt of truth, last week the shoes, uh, the preparation of the gospel of peace. And so we are learning that as we apply Christ, it is the only way to have strength to stand. Strength to stand is found only in Christ applied in our heart and in our mind. But what does that mean? It's still somewhat abstract to apply Christ to our heart and our mind. And so, with that, we're going to keep this and look at the armor as we read this together. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, and through verse 20. You'll stand as we read this together in honor of the Word of Christ, the Word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. You may be seated. So as we've looked at this idea, the strength to stand and finding and applying Christ to our life, as we read, looking at the belt of truth, This is to say that Christ applied is our identifying reality. Applying Christ 
as our identifying reality say there is no greater mark by which we identify ourselves than Jesus Christ. His promises, His gospel is the truth. It is the belt that holds us together and not even gender our marital status Our parental status or any other quality is to mark us, identifying us as greater than simply we are in Christ. He identifies us. Our hope is that we belong to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then we keep on reading the breastplate of righteousness Christ applied as our accepted morality. Our accepted morality say that he has given us righteousness. In the same way that the Roman uh, breastplate would have a uh, figure cut in, the muscles, the abdominals already cut in, looking a certain way, so too Jesus Christ gives us a righteousness by which we appear before God and he no longer sees our flabbiness as far as our morality goes, our selfishness. He sees instead the righteousness of Christ. But not only is it given to us, but the righteousness of Christ then becomes active as a standard transforming us. And that from this point on, if we are in Christ, we identify what is right and wrong, what is truth by Jesus, His righteousness. To say no longer is it the cultural Norms of the day. That's one of the things that the Supreme Court justices are trying to figure out how to uh, apply the Constitution and the social norms of the day. And that's a tricky thing, isn't it? It is to say that for the believer in Christ, it is not the social norms. It is Christ who is our righteousness, who directs us, defines us, and lets us know this is the path that we should go on. It is the breastplate of righteousness as we apply Christ to our heart and our mind the way we think. We keep on reading. Last week we looked at verse 15. Shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And so the armor, or the shoes, is actually the readiness, or the spiritual fitness. We looked at the nimbleness, is another way of saying this. The nimbleness that comes from the gospel of peace coming into life. So Christ applied as our gospel-sharing mobility, the shoes that give us traction to stand on this is the gospel. Let me speak forth in a society that hates the word of Christ to say, I will stand, I will speak what, what Christ has given to me. It is my hope for peace. And it frees us to do so. And so we've talked about how we as a church have been given The gospel of peace that should make us nimble, ready to share the gospel. And then, as we keep on reading today, looking at verse 16 and 17 primarily. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So what is this shield of faith? How is that the Christ, the message of Christ applying to our heart and mind? This is simply Christ applied as our perspective of spiritual reality. Faith in Christ 
gives us the perspective of our spirituality in all circumstances. You notice how it says in every or in all circumstances. What does it mean to have Christ in our life in this circumstance? It should define how we see the spiritual landscape around us. Christ must enter every dilemma, every problem, every personal, emotional struggle, you must bring in the message of Christ into that scene. Now, as we look at this, there's a couple of thoughts I want you to understand. That First, God allows attacks from the evil one. We've looked at this before, but when he says, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Don't you wish it said, by which you could forego all the fiery darts of the evil one, which you could detour. It does not say that there is a get-out-of-attack pass. But instead, it is Christ applied to our thinking that helps extinguish the fiery darts. Now, of course, you know uh, in the Roman times, or the military times, the, uh, the shield uh, was not perhaps maybe what you've seen in some movies where it's a nice little disc that you could throw. Um, this is more like a mobile door that you would carry around with you that would cover the entirety of your physical statue. Uh, and so uh, usually and when you're sieging a city or when an army is coming against you, you would form a line of shields uh, to withstand the front line of the opposing force. And so you'd want it to cover the entire length of your body. Uh, in a siege situation, uh, the enemy would often not only just throw darts, but add the element of fire to that, because there's few things more terrifying than seeing your comrade up in flames that would produce a fear to say, I'm going to get out of Dodge, I'm going to run. Uh, and so he was just taking a, a very military theme here and saying, look, what Satan does primarily is design to produce fear in your heart and life, to say, I will be afraid, I can't stand, I cannot continue on what God has called me to do, I'm too afraid. And so the attacks of Satan is to produce a disabling of our heart in faith and let fear replace faith. And so these fire darts are brought to bear. So what does this mean? First of all, you see all types of Old Testament uh, allusions to God being Our shield, you see this in Psalm 35. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. And you see this rephrase over and over again in the Old Testament. To say Christ is going to be active in my situation. And so Satan will attack. Do you know that? Don't be surprised when there are attacks in your life. But there are certain marks that we see. I would like to take you to a few passages and show you some of how Satan attacks. What are the themes? If you remember in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis 3, you have Adam and Eve attacking, being attacked by Satan, tempting them. And so you'll see, he says to Eve, did God really say? 
did God really say? And so starts questioning the validity of God's statements, his words. And then he starts questioning the motives of God. And he says, well, you know, God only said that because if you eat of that fruit, then you'll be as wise as he. And so he starts questioning the motives of who they are or who God is and and their attention. So you get a couple clues there that there is a, a, a twisting of the word. He talks about. Did Eve, or he says to Eve, did Satan really say, or did God really say, and starts twisting the word of God. You see these marks of questioning validity of God, questioning the motives of God, and then twisting the word of God. You see other examples in Job, where God opens up the door uh, to the spiritual realm to help us to see how does Satan attack And Satan says to God, Job does not serve you for naught, but if you take those things from him, he will surely curse you and die. You see that Satan starts accusing the believer and saying they are hypocritical. They're only there because of what you provide. You see the twisting and the attacking of a person that Satan will do in Job. And then let's go to Jesus, the example of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4 and in Mark chapter 1, you've got some ideas of, of how Satan attacks. Uh, first of all, in Mark chapter 1, if you'll go there, you'll see uh, an interesting phrase that lets us know that God is well aware when Satan's going to attack and allows these things to happen. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavenlies being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Then notice this next phrase, the spirit, who? Capital S, the spirit, the spirit of God, immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. God knew what was going to happen. God allowed it, in fact, drove it, partly to identify with the Israelites of the old going out into the wilderness. And and those 40 years, Jesus was going to be 40 days to identify with the temptations that the Israelites failed in time after time after time and felt the consequences of their falling away from God. Jesus himself would go into the wilderness for 40 days, endure the temptations, but instead of failing would shine and say, I am the beloved Son of God, which God the Father is well pleased Here's the test. But notice what Satan said to him. You see this in Matthew chapter 4, the parallel account of this. It's interesting, the phrasing, noticing how God records Satan's words. Matthew 4, verse 3. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, of God. What's the first attack? Who you are in Christ. Who you are in Christ. Uh, if, you, if you're really God's son, then, notice in verse 6, if you are the son of God. 
you'll see the, the phrase questioning who you are and what God has called you to do. It is a mark, you see, of Satan in Matthew 4. You see it in Job. You see it with Genesis and Adam and Eve. It's the same refrain. If you are this, well, then why don't you prove it? And then it says, we keep on going, If you are the Son of God, verse 3, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Verse 4, but he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The idea is, if you are this person, then God will supply this need. He will take care of you. You see that repeated again in the next one. Verse 6, he said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now what is, G- what is Satan doing? Where does he get this from? He gets it from the Word of God. You need to understand, Satan knows how to read. You realize that? He knows how to read. He knows what the Word of God says. In fact, he's memorized it. You don't, you don't want to be at, at a disadvantage with Satan. I would just implore you, memorize the Word of God. Satan's done it, and he's going to use it against you. He takes the Word of God, though, and instead of just quoting, he distorts it. Takes it out of context. One of the hallmarks that you see of Satan to take the truth and distorting it, mixing it. And so you see that's happening right here, and this is what Satan does. Jesus said to him, again is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus uses the word of God, which goes into the next piece of armor, two pieces of armor, away, the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. Jesus said to him, again is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the word of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now one of the things you need to understand is that sometimes Satan will use thoughts that you think up yourself. But then there are sometimes Satan will bring to you thoughts, questions, that just at the thinking of them will strike you as heinous. And then you will say to yourself, my goodness, how can a believer even think such things? How can that even cross my mind? Something so evil, something so wrong. Listen, how, how does it strike you that enter Jesus' mind that he should bow down to Satan? Now that, when you see that, like, well, no, that doesn't come from Jesus, that came from Satan. You need to understand that there are sometimes, there are some thoughts, some questions that are not originating with you that come from Satan himself. But Satan will even use that. See, what kind of person you are to even think such things? You could not be God's child. You see these hallmarks throughout the Bible. You need to study the attacks of Satan. What do the fiery darts look like? What are the characteristics of the fiery darts? We see in this time that there's these common points of mixing truths, questioning the motives of God, questioning the credibility of his promises, questioning your identity and worth to God. Whenever you see attacks, thoughts, 
incidents that come to your life that have these marks, then you know you can identify it for what it is. God allows tax from evil ones. Why? Well, that's another sermon. But we've seen another times, and two or three weeks ago, as we looked at the spiritual warfare, that God uses it to purify our own hearts. Uses it to humble us. Using it to show us his power. And we've got to keep in mind that the Bible describes God as the vine dresser who doesn't mind pruning away some of the green to produce fruit. That God is described as the heavenly father who will allow a lesser pain to prevent a greater, more destructive pain. You would say to yourself, well surely in Satan's attack, how could cancer be something of a lesser pain? Listen, when God knows that the greatest evil that could befall you is for you to be separated from him forever, then there is a whole world of lesser pains to prevent the greatest pain in your life. But listen, I want to bring you to another idea of this, that faith is an active decision. Uh, We see that God allows attacks from the evil one, but faith is a very active decision. Notice how it's phrased here. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. A very active decision. It's something that is not passive. There must be a decision in your heart to say, I will view this circumstance by the faith of God. It is a decision that comes upon you. Faith is bringing to bear the reality of who God is in your situation. Looking at God, not looking at yourself. Looking at Him and reminding yourself of who He is. That's the shield of faith. 2 Corinthians verse 4, verse 16 and 18 says, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It is a decision to say, I will look at this believing that God is at work. And that's just a decision. I think about the, te- the Word of God in the Old Testament. We see this example throughout. In 2 Kings chapter 6, there's this place called Dothan. And the Syrian army is trying to get Elisha because he seems to be the source of every defeat of the Syrians. And so they're trying to rid him. And so they hunt him down and find that he's in this place called Dothan. And they send their army to get him. And the army surrounds the city of Dothan. And Elisha is there and his servant is there come telling him, Elisha, Elisha, there is an army surrounding us. What shall we do? And Elisha's word to the servant is, do not be afraid. There is a mighty army greater than the one you see. And he starts praying for God to open up his eyes that he could see. And at that prayer, Elisha's servant looks around and sees in the mountains surrounding the city an angelic army that is far greater than the opposition in front of him. It lets me know that to take up the shield of faith That though it be an active decision, it is still a fruit of God's working in our life. 
It may be that you have to say, oh God, the circumstances are dire around me. The, the adversity is stiff. I don't think I can go through this, but God, I, you know, you've called me to go. I don't want to go. This is a hard thing. I don't know if I can. God, would you give me the faith to go through what is in front and around, to pray for the perspective of faith. Have you ever prayed that? It is a prayer that we are to pray because to take up our shield of faith is a work of God in our life. But when you hear the word of God, you know the word of God, and you make a decision, I'm either going to believe it or I don't, you will amaze, be amazed at what God's power will do as you take his word for fact and truth, though unseen, you act upon it as it being true. I think about this in different times of my life. To realize it's just something I have to believe. I remember the first time I uh, had the doctor said you need to have a colonoscopy. I shared this with you some time ago. It scared me out of my mind. I went home shaking. I was in my 20s, and I, you know, internet and sickness is a bad thing. You cannot take up the shield of faith by taking up the internet to diagnose yourself. It is an instrument of fear. I was reading things like colon cancer, and I was like, oh, good gracious. And I, I was torn up. I'm trying to tell someone. I can't tear, tell someone without my voice cracking. And I was just was scared. And at some point as I sat in the misery of my fear to say a sense of word of God to say, do you believe that God is there or not? <laughs> of all the things you've been talking about and preaching about, the things you know in the word of God, you, it's time. Do you believe it or do you not? And at that thought, I thought, oh God, forgive me. For letting fear take over, I will believe your word. You are here, and you will work. And at that word, it was just a sense of trusting God. There's some beautiful promises like Isaiah 26.3, that will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on God because he trusts in him. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, that will keep him. Uh, uh, be careful, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. There are promises there given to us, but it has to understand that God is there. I remember flying over to China for the first time and, and, and freaking out for a little bit, realizing I'm going to be in a communist government and somebody can do something to me and no one has to know. What do I do? And I remembered in the airplane thinking through the promises of God that says, you know what? Not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father knowing about it. You are much more value of many sparrows. Fear not. Don't fear what those can do to your body. Fear the one that can do something to your soul. It's the word of God that comes to your heart and mind, but it's still yours to say, I take it up. 
I take up the shield of faith. I will believe that Christ is at work in our life. But keep on reading. Verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. When we hear the word salvation, it's a very broad terminology. Save some from some impending doom that's coming. In the Bible, you see there's three tenses to this idea of being saved. There's past tense, present tense, future tense. A lot of times we'll ask the question, are you saved? Are you saved? Am I saved? When we think about it, use it in the word past tense. And there's a truth to that, but it's an incomplete perspective still. To say, like in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, the very passage that we're looking at, is, as he has already elaborated on this, he says, for by grace you are saved. Past tense. What does he mean? Past tense means that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. That I can say in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That I, the penalty of sin has been removed. I've been saved from that. Do you know what it is to have the penalty of sin removed from you? To be saved from that. It is a promise that God extends to you not because you're good, not because you're right, not because you're religious, but because you see the need and you see it in Christ. Do you know what it is to be saved by the penalty of sin? But in Philippians chapter 2, we see that there's a present tense aspect of being saved. To say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who has worked within you. What is that referring to? That is referring to the, the present tense aspect of being saved from the power of sin. That there is still grapples, holds in my heart and mind, intuitions and desires that are there that the grace of God, the love of God is coming in and changing my heart loyalty, my heart desires to say, I no longer want that in my life. That though I want a holiness in my life. I want a Christ righteousness in my life. And so there's a present tense, being saved. But then there's also a future tense of being saved. That It's not yet completely done. What do we mean by that? We have not yet been removed from the very presence of sin. It is still around me. It's still within me. I see it every day around me. But there will be a day in time when the sin and all the effects of it in nature and in life itself will be instantly removed by the power of God. And it is something we long for, we look to, to say, God, will one day you remove the very presence of sin It's beleaguering me. It's constantly nipping at my heart. Imagine what life itself will be like when that's done. So what does that mean for us? When you think about salvation, the helmet of salvation, it is to say Christ applied to our future reality. Christ applied to our futurality to say that salvation has hit my past, is hitting my present, but it's also hitting my future and it gives me hope. I would note 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 
through 14 also gives us some more insight in this. Besides this, you know the time that the hours come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of the darkness. Put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. The Lord's salvation is near to us, nearer than when we first believed it is coming upon us. It is to say that one day how we're separated. I mean, think about it. Sin in a lot of ways is separation. Uh, what would happen if you got separated from oxygen? That would be devastating to your body. I would suggest to you that is a nothing in comparison to how we've been separated from God and how that is rotting us spiritually and now ultimately physically and is impacting everything in nature itself, that there has been a separation from the presence of God. Think about the, the, par, uh, the prodigal son. The prodigal son had all the benefits of the father. And one day would have all that at his disposal when the father died. But the prodigal son said to the father, I want that portion now. It was always his, but what he was saying is, I don't want the presence of the Father anymore. I want the benefits, but I don't want the Father anymore. And he runs from the Father, and he's separated, and he sees how his life drops down. So, when we are separated from God, there is a disintegration of who we are. Nature itself. But when we have salvation, it comes in and restores us to what will be. And as a promise, that one day nature itself will be different. Have you ever thought about that when nature is redeemed, when the world itself is set aflame by God himself ruling and everything made right that is wrong, how that might affect our body? Have you ever thought that someday we might have more than five senses? We might be able to do more than just see, hear, touch, taste, feel. There's, what if there's some other senses? What if, what if there is dozens and hundreds and thousands of senses we've not yet experienced? What would it be like to experience a brother or sister in crisis with senses we've never even imagined? There is a way of living that our imaginations just sets fire when we think about it. It is the future reality. It is the hope of salvation. It is to say there is something of which I'm going to and whatever I'm enduring right now, it is nothing in comparison to when Christ returns and everything made right. Listen, that is true of our church. It's true of our life. To say what all that we endure, when Christ returns, what difference will it make at that point? We look forward to that time. Last month, I bought a, a new TV with uh, birthday money. Ultra HD. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, sound, it's just a selling point. I don't know. And then I actually started watching something that was in Ultra HD. And I thought, good. Gracious, I've never seen anything like that. I don't think, 
I don't think waves look like that in person. I started watching shows I could care little about just so I could see the graphics on this thing. I remember, I remember the news anchors talking about when HD came out, how it changed news anchoring. Because now everybody can see every little line on the face. The lighting changed. The makeup changed. Women, you know that when you put your makeup on, it doesn't do to put it on in the dark of the morning. To put your makeup on in the lighting of the dark of the morning. Because the problem is, you don't live in the dark of the morning. Somewhere along the way, the sun will rise, and you'll be outside, and you will be seen in the light of the sun, not in some shadow, incandescent light in the morning. And so there's now mirrors, or there have been mirrors, with makeup mirrors, that you can adjust the lighting so that when you apply the, the makeup on, though it be dark, it will be as light in that spot so that you can be prepared for the light to come. Listen, the Bible is giving us that there is the hope of salvation. There is a day when we will see each other and we will see the world itself and we will see Christ, not in shadowy terminology, but we will see each other with a brand new light. And so let me just share with you what that verse says again. Besides this, you know the time. The hours come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far goner. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. To say, let me, as I wake up each day, live with Jesus reigning in my life. I'm not going to make provision for my selfishness and all the directions it's going to go because one day there's darkness of the world I live in is going to be cast away and the light of Christ will expose all that is in Christ and will reveal all that is in dark. That is the helmet of salvation, the hope of salvation, that the misery, the the challenges of this day will not always be. Paul said, I've reckoned that these sufferings of this world are not to be compared with the glories that will come. Have you gone through sufferings, travails, adversities? Has it wrecked havoc on your soul, your mind, your emotions? I would say to you, as bad as they've been, they're not even to be compared with the glory that is to come. And if the sufferings of this world had wrecked havoc on your soul, how much more shall the glories of Christ refresh our hearts there is a life we've not yet begun to live and the helmet of salvation reminds us of that and we start living for a whole new day not for what is not for the hidden resources recesses of our heart and all this desires but for what's revealed in christ with that thought i want us to pray and i ask you Have you surrendered to the God that can give you a helmet of salvation? Have you surrendered to the God who says your past and the penalty of your sins have been paid for? 
The God who says, I will give you a strength and power to deal with the sins that are there. And the God who says, I control the future. And I've got a day set aside that will be unlike anything you've ever known before. And I will be the one reigning on that day. Have you surrendered to that God? Let's pray.